Hello everyone, I am Dalton Burdett of The Movie Nights, and if you're watching this, it's because you want to hear my uncensored and unfiltered thoughts and opinions about the world of movies, so kick back, grab a snack, and thank you for being a part of the conversation. Riding solo today, this is going to be a little bit interesting, but uh, nonetheless, we have a lot of movie news to talk about, more than I was hoping for, because it's a lot of, you know, organization and link saving. But uh, it'll be fun and interesting nonetheless, and at the end of the show, we're going to do the franchise spotlight for Scream, and a uh, lot of lot of fun and cool stuff planned for today. Again, sorry about all the moving boxes, and I set it up this way so I could so have something somewhat movie-related behind me. You should see, like, a Logan poster and Christopher Reeve back there. Maybe if it's too dark, who knows? But uh, either way, you and me, we're going to get through this together. So let's get right into it with something that actually just dropped right as I was about to start recording. And that is that Black Widow has officially delayed into May of next year. Basically, the MCU is shifting all their stuff for 2020 originally just a year later, with some minor exceptions with some stuff being moved around a little bit in 2021. I believe Shang-Chi will still come out in 2021, along with Eternals and Black Widow. Um, Also, WandaVision released a trailer yesterday, which we'll get into a little bit. And um, But first, let's focus on the Black Widow thing. Oh, I get it. That they want to be safe. They want to make as much money as possible. They don't want people to get sick by pushing the movie. I totally understand that. Totally get it. But also, I work at a movie theater. And in terms of working at a movie theater, if this box was a panic button... It's going to be fun to sound edit later. No, but uh, yeah, this is really, really bad news for theatrical exhibition. Like, horrible news. I wouldn't be too surprised if suddenly I got a phone call in the few, in the next few days saying that we are going to have to shut down again until Thanksgiving, which is when James Bond comes out. Now, interestingly enough, Disney did move and shuffle some things around, but they kept Soul in late November, and they moved Death on the Nile from October to December. So it seems like all of the studios are committed to a Thanksgiving through Christmas, like, a big movie run like the pre-pandemic era, but we'll see how closely that stays happening. You know, with James Bond coming out in Thanksgiving and with uh, Wonder Woman at Christmas, there's going to be a lot of movies in between. Hopefully, theaters can survive in that holiday season and continue in through the next year. Now, let's get into the WandaVision trailer that just came out yesterday or the other day. Well, not yesterday from when you're watching this, from when I'm recording this. Um, what a fantastic trailer that was. It really, really just showed, like, this new quirky, weird direction that the MCU is going, specifically on the Disney Plus platform. Now, originally, this was going to come out after Black Widow and after The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But since The Falcon and the Winter Soldier didn't fully finish production pre-COVID, and because it is probably tied to Black Widow in one way or another. We don't know this, but since they're pushing that next year and Black Widow next year, that seems like it might be the case. But either way, Marvel and Disney have decided that WandaVision isn't connected to any of those properties, and, you know, the MCU needs something new for 2020, so it will come out before the end of 2020. And that is very interesting to see, and nice. You know, it'd be nice to get some MCU content in there. But the trailer itself was awesome. You got to see some of Catherine Hahn. You got to see some of the new actress playing Monica Rambeau, the little girl from Captain Marvel who's now all grown up. You get to see Vision. You get to see Scarlet Witch. Now, clearly, either this takes place in sort of some mental space of Scarlet Witch or some, like, town with a bubble dome that she's taken over. It gives hints as to what's going on, but I'm sure we'll find out as we watch the show. But uh, regardless, 
it looks bonkers in a good way. It looks crazy. It almost looks like Legion, not like in terms of, you know, the tone, but just in terms of the glorious weirdness. Like, whenever I describe the show Legion to somebody, I say, that movie is weird in a great way. And I feel like WandaVision is going to be similar to that. It's going to be weird in a great way. So it was a really nice trailer. I'm looking forward to it. And um, it'll be really interesting to see how it ties into future MCU movies going forward because we know from statements from Marvel that it does tie into Doctor Strange 2 and it ties into the upcoming Loki series. So, that's interesting. And uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to more of our movie news stories that we had planned for today. First up, in more MCU-related news, um, a show that they announced at, I believe, D23 was She-Hulk, that they were going to finally be doing Jessica Walters on the um, small screen for now, but it probably eventually move into the big screen. But She-Hulk was announced, and they have finally cast She-Hulk in the actress of Tatiana Maslany, who is most notably known for playing Orphan Black, or the mini roles in Orphan Black, I should say. I never did watch that show, but I remember being advertised, because I'm a big Doctor Who fan, and when I used to watch it on BBC, Orphan Black was everywhere on there. And... She has been nominated for an Emmy multiple times, and I believe she might have even won once for it. Um, I've heard nothing but great things about the show, especially her performance. So I'm really looking forward to this. I think this is great casting, and it'll be interesting to see how they're going to do the Jennifer Walters um, origin. Because in the comic books, you know, it's it's kind of like a blood transfusion thing from Bruce Banner. But uh, we don't know how involved Mark Ruffalo is going to be. We know from a while back that they were asking him to briefly show up in the show. But we just didn't know how much he was going to be in the show. But um, hopefully they did, you know, finalize an agreement with him to show up at some point. Or even if it's not the same origin, it would just be nice to see him in the show and involved somehow. Um, I, I, th- I do think they'll still make her the cousin. It would be weird if they didn't, especially if they do bring Mark Ruffalo in. But in terms of how she gets her powers, who knows? But either way, I'm looking forward to this. I think this is nothing but fantastic casting. It's never a bad idea to add talent, and she is certainly talented nonetheless. I'm very much so looking forward to that. And uh, on to our next story. Um, This comes to us from The Hollywood Reporter with an interview that Joel Kinnaman did. Joel Kinnaman is a very famous actor who is going to reprise his role as Colonel Rick Flagg in the upcoming The Suicide Squad, directed by James Gunn. And according to him... Not only does he give high praise to the movie, he claims it's heavily R-rated. In the interview, he goes on to talk about how every page of the script made him laugh, that he loves it, blah, blah, blah. He's probably not lying, but, you know, actor promoting a movie, what do you expect them to say? Of course, they're going to say they love it. But the thing that was interesting, and that hadn't been confirmed up until that point, was he straight up said, no, this movie is heavily R-rated. And that's something that fans have been wondering since the announcement of the movie, since, you know, James Gunn started making it, and from the little sizzle reel that we got at DC Fandom. A lot of people were wondering, what is this movie going to be? Because we know under Walter Hamada's new leadership that he's very open to filmmakers just doing what they want to do. Um, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn was R-rated and in the DC Universe, and I personally liked that movie, thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, It didn't do very well box office-wise, and it was okay critically, but um, one of the things I did like about it was that it was R-rated. It wasn't heavily R-rated, but it, it wasn't afraid to go there, and according to Joel Kinnaman, this isn't not, it's not only afraid, I'm sorry, not only not afraid to go there, but it goes there in spades. And if you're familiar with James Gunn's early work, such as Super, Slither, things like that, you know that this R rating is going to be no problem for him. So I'm very curious to see Unhinged James Gunn, and I'm excited to see more of an R-rated Suicide Squad, because I feel like 
that's what that kind of ragtag ragtag team deserves. They deserve that just bonkers hard R rating, and I'm very much so looking forward to that. And uh, moving on, this one I'm also pulling from the Hollywood Reporter and more Disney Plus um, MCU news. Another show that they announced at D23 was Miss Marvel, Kamala Khan, making her MCU debut on Disney Plus, and they have found their directors of the series. It's going to be the directors of Bad Boys for Life, and I'm going to absolutely mess up these names, so I apologize dearly, but Adil El Arbi and Bilali Fala. That's definitely wrong, and I'm so sorry. But um, they directed Bad Boys for Life earlier this year, and they've made tons of television credits. Um, They've directed things like The Walking Dead, even The Punisher over on Netflix, which is technically MCU, but we'll see. Um, a lot of stuff, and they are going to be helming the Miss Marvel series for Disney+. And it's interesting to see that these future shows are finally starting to get casting and behind the scenes going. Um, I think pretty soon we'll find out who's going to be playing Moon Knight and who's going to be writing and directing Moon Knight. They might have already announced who's writing it, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, regardless, this is exciting news. I never saw Bad Boys for Life, but everyone I talked to Love that movie. Like, even people who didn't like the previous Bad Boys movies, and I even talked to people who'd never even seen the previous Bad Boys movies, but they all spoke very highly of just the incredible fun times of Bad Boys for Life, and it's a movie that I still need to catch up on and see. But, um, you know, clearly Marvel's like what they've done, and they like the pitch that they have, and I'm really looking forward to Miss Marvel. Looking forward to all the Disney Plus MCU shows. Who are we kidding? But um, I'm really excited about this, and I'm glad that, you know, even in this, you know, pandemic era, they can continue to make these decisions and move on and just kind of get things rolling so that when the world slowly starts to spin again, that they can just jump right into these things and not feel like they're behind. So it's really a good move on Marvel to get all of this stuff done now while they can. Because I'm sure boredom is a lot of it too, which will be interesting. Uh, This next story comes to us from Deadline. Um, There is an anime film called Your Name, which was recommended to me by my good friend Chris. Chris Heiler told me to watch it, and I really like the movie. It's a very good movie, but they're going to be making a live-action reboot of the film. And uh, Lee Isaac Chung is going to be directing it. This, like I said, comes to us from Deadline. And the movie's production company will be um, J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot, who they've produced tons of great films. You know, all of their films look great and sound great, so from that perspective i think this movie's in great hands i'm not too familiar with um lee isaac chung's work but um clearly they think he's the right choice paramount i believe is just just distributing the movie i talk very fast um but yeah no um it looks like this would be the right move this may or may not work in live action adaptations we don't know we're gonna have to see um hopefully they don't try to make it an exact carbon copy because i don't know if everything in this story translates well to live action but I think they wouldn't have chosen this director if he didn't have some idea of how to translate it into a live-action, you know, feature film. And I think that ultimately it will work out, or at least I hope so. But I thought that that was interesting news. That they're, I, I didn't even know they were making a live-action one, let alone that they had found a director. So that's very interesting news as well. Uh, this next story uh, is a bit of a somber one. And, you know, normally I, I don't do a whole lot of celebrity deaths unless they really impact... Um, pop culture or me personally but just in terms of me being a film fan falling in love with movies and you know anyone who falls in love with movies at some point in their life has that period of time normally when they're like a young adult or like a teenager where all they do is just look up every classic movie that they can and watch them just watch as many as they can because you know just cinema just kind of takes over their life which did happen to me and someone 
who was an avant cinematographer during that time, has unfortunately passed away. His name was Michael Chapman. And just, just listen to some of these guys' credits that he did. This man shot Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, The Lost Waltz, um, the 1970s Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and The Fugitive. Has unfortunately passed away. It's really rather unfortunate to see. And um, he, he was such an impactful person in cinema during that time. And it's just a shame that he passed away. And hopefully um, his legacy will live on forever. Moving on to our next story. Uh, it seems, apparently based on recent events and just from this new story that Ryan Gosling is now moving to the point in his career where he wants that blockbuster money because he's teaming with director David Leitch to make the movie The Fall Guy about a stuntman for Universal. And um, Universal has, you know, won apparently what was seen to be like a bidding war for the movie, which is interesting. Um, apparently the number's hitting $125 million to win this project over with Ryan Gosling and David Leitch about Hollywood stuntmen. And it... You know, you put this great actor with this director known for how well they can do action scenes, and Dalton's there. I'm there. Um, I can't wait to see this movie. We really don't know anything about it other than it's about stuntmen, but it's going to be awesome just from those two being involved. And, you know, you have Ryan Gosling also doing that movie with the Russo brothers and being the Wolfman, so clearly he's making decisions of he wants that blockbuster money now, and he deserves it. He's a great actor, and he deserves that. He definitely deserves that. And uh, for our last news story today... This one comes to us from an announcement that James Gunn made just moments before recording this, and that is there's going to be a Suicide Squad spinoff TV show about Pacemaker, or Peacemaker, excuse me, st starring John Cena from the new Suicide Squad movie on HBO Max. So HBO Max is not only doing a show that ties into Matt Reeves' Batman universe, but also the DCEU with John Cena playing Peacemaker once again. Now, James Gunn has said that they're not going to announce when the series takes place because, you know, it's Suicide Squad. Who knows who's going to die in that film? But the article in Variety does say that um, it will explore his origins. So whether it completely takes place before or jumps back and forth, we know that his origin will be talked about, at least in the film. It's described as this bonkers action comedy, which I'm so excited for. James Gunn wrote the whole series, and he's going to be directing the pilot in a couple of the other episodes. I believe it's eight episodes from the report. But also, interestingly enough... He's going to do this before he does Guardians 3, which is in the Variety article, is that there's a period of time where he's not going to be doing anything, and he got bored during quarantine, wrote this series, and he's going to go into production on it before he shoots Guardians 3, which is just fantastic that he's been having, clearly he's having a ball in the time of his life over with Warner Brothers and DC doing this, and I couldn't be happier. I think this is great for him, I think this is great for DC, and I, I for one, will definitely be watching this series and I know that there are a lot of fans who really want Ben Affleck to come back and be Batman. He is coming back for the Flash movie, but, like, and be Batman, like, on HBO Max. Like, maybe he gets to do his Batman movie on HBO Max, which I think are just rumors for now. But this move does set a precedent for the DCEU continuing on HBO Max. So who knows? We'll see. We shall see. And now, finally, let's move on to the franchise spotlight for the Scream franchise. I've been very much looking forward to this because I adore this franchise unabashedly. Uh, the movie Scream has a special place in my heart, especially the first one. But um, before I really dive into it, I do want to say, for the love of God, if you have not watched any of the Scream movies, please, please stop watching this video, go watch them, and then come back and check this out. You do not want these movies spoiled for you. The first movie 
while there were a lot of movies before the first Scream that wanted to get me into directing, this was one of the first movies that really wanted me to get into screenwriting. The script is so good, the twist works on every level, it is shocking, it's amazing. Please, please, if you have not watched this, because we're going to spoil all of them, so please, if you have not watched them, please, please don't watch the rest of this. Watch those movies first and come back. Please. With that being said, spoiler warning galore, let's dive into the first Scream, which came out in 1996, directed by the great Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson. Now, this movie infamously caused a huge bidding war in Hollywood because the screenplay was so awesome. It revitalized the slasher, which had been dead in the 80s, and um, it really just was about this meta horror movie that had comedic elements with its meta-ness of it kind of making fun of the structure and tropes of slasher movies while also being a slasher movie at the same time. Um, A lot of it done through the character of Randy, played by Jamie Kennedy, who does a fantastic job. But you can't even talk about Scream without bringing up Nev Campbell as Sidney Prescott, who's personally my favorite final girl in any horror movie ever. I love Sidney Prescott, the character. And Nev Campbell plays her wonderfully. On the supporting cast as well, um, Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, the bitchy reporter, and um, David Arquette as Dewey, the cop who is still kind of uh, growing into being an adult but wants to be more adult than he actually is. It's it's so, so scary, good, well-written, genuine, and funny. It's, it's everything you kind of want a movie to be. But also, you really understand the trauma and understanding of this lead character. But now, it is done through a high school glaze, which, you know, a lot of high schoolers don't really understand the seriousness of trauma in someone's life. Like, for example, um, like every high school thing ever, um, Sydney's boyfriend in the movie, Billy, played by Skeet Ulrich, constantly just wants to know, like, hey, like, why aren't we having sex yet? Like, we've been dating for so long. When are we going to have sex? And she's kind of trying to explain to him, like, my mother was raped and murdered last year. Like, it's, it's you know, this being intimate's very hard for me. And he's just kind of like, yeah, okay, but, like, it's been a while, though. Like, you know, and, you know, in, in high school, you don't really think about the lasting effects that these things can have. You just kind of want to get your dick wet, basically. So just seeing that was kind of funny in a way. But also... Um, the opening scene is very infamous. Um, Drew Barrymore was all over the marketing for this film. She was a huge star in the 90s. And in the opening scene, you know, with the phone call, with that creepy voice played by Roger Jackson, um, you know, asking, what's your favorite scary movie? Just taunting, torturing Drew Barrymore over this phone, brutally murders her in this really suspenseful scene where her parents are so close, but the killer just gets her and drags her away, hangs her up by the tree. And the biggest star at the time was killed in the opening act of the movie. You know, hearkening back to Nightmare on Elm Street and even before that, Psycho. And it was just such a attention getter and pulling in your audience for the rest of your film. It's one of the best opening scenes in cinematic history, in my opinion. Also, this film just does such a great job of building character and, you know, setting things up in the screenplay to pay off at later points. Like, um... When Billy comes over, Sydney's boyfriend, she rigs her door to open it so that um, her dad can't get past it. And then later, when the killer's in her house, she rigs the same door so the killer can't get into her room. Just little things like that. Um, Also, the performance of Skeet Ulrich as Billy and Matthew Lillard as Stu. Fantastic, in which we'll get into the twist here in a little bit. But um, the kills in this movie are great. The practical blood effects are great. The makeup's great. Um, The structure of the story and where it goes and how it plays out is all wonderful. And the twist at the end of the movie is where the movie just, like, crescendos into another category of awesomeness. And that is the fact that 
not only are there two killers instead of one, which is an, its own twist, but it's Billy the Boyfriend and his best friend Stu, played by Matthew Lillard. And the movie does a great job of making you think it's the boyfriend in the beginning of the movie, but then pulling back being like, nah, that would be too obvious. And even you see a killer kill Billy, completely taking that out of your head, and then you find out it was all part of the plan, it was all faked, so that when Billy comes back, he's revealed as one of the killers. It just does a, such a great job of making you point at every character in the movie, and there are shots and lines that each character says, you're like, oh, it could be them, or oh, it could be them. It was such a great mystery at the heart of that story, that horror slasher story. And the incredible third act of this movie, when these two killers are confronting Sydney, just, you can tell just how psychotically nuts these two are. And, um... At the time, there was a conversation of, like, do movies spark violence in people? And this movie makes fun of that, but also kind of shows proprietors of it. And Billy has a great line where Sidney says to him, you're just a couple of sick fucks who have seen one too many movies. And then Billy says, don't blame movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. And it's a very haunting line, but it says a lot about this film and about these characters. And... Also, Stu is kind of an underwritten character in the movie. It's a great script. Kevin Williamson does a great job. But even I think he would say that Stu is kind of an underwritten character. But Matthew Lillard's performance really brings that character to a whole other level. And especially some of the amazing improvisation and ad-libs that Matthew Lillard does in the film. Just fantastic. And it's it's just really something to see all of that come together in the end. And um, Stu really has no motive. He just kind of wanted to do something with Billy, and he's just a teenager. Well, Billy finally admits to Sidney Prescott that your mom was having sex with my dad, and my mother left my family and abandoned me. Because in the story, when Sidney's mother was raped and murdered a year prior, she thought it was a guy named Cotton Weary, played by Liev Schreiber briefly in the film, who she, her testimony put him away, but it was actually Billy and Stu. And so not only do you get this horror of you're confronting the person who killed your mom, but also the guilt of I put the wrong person in jail because I trusted this person as like my boyfriend. It's such a heart-wrenching thing to really think about. And Billy actually has motive. And it was an interesting thing, realization to come to at that point. And then, you know, of course, you know, both killers end up being dead. Um, Sydney, uh, Nev Campbell's character, Courtney Cox's Gale, David Arquette's Dewey and Randy all survive, and then the next year you get Scream 2. Again, if you have not seen Scream 2, please don't let this get spoiled for you here. Go watch it and then come back, please. Um, Scream 2 is almost as good as Scream 1, in my personal opinion. I think Scream 2 is great and very overlooked. It's not quite as good as Scream 1, but it is excellent, and... You In this movie, it's similar to except Sydney's in college, and she's really grown as a character. She has caller ID now, which, ironically, America, caller ID shot up in popularity after the first Scream was released. But, you know, you, you get this new person who doesn't want to be the victim anymore and is tired of running away from things, but at the same time wants that part of her life to just be gone. And when Ghostface creeps back into her life in college, it, it, things get difficult for her, and especially because they're making a movie in within the movie called Stab, about the events of the first Scream in that world, which was cool and interesting to see based on the book that Gail wrote, because she's, you know, the reporter capitalizing off of everything. Um, her and David Arquette's chemistry and relationship in this movie works excellently. I think this is the best movie of them two in it, and ironically, they did get married in real life for a stint there. Um, Randy is just as funny in the comedic relief role as he was in the previous film. 
Um, Jerry O'Connell joins the cast, who plays Sydney's new boyfriend, who the film does a very good job of, like, I wouldn't trust this guy, because last time it was the boyfriend. Um, Jada Pickett-Smith has a very minor role in the beginning. Omar Epps also. Um, the opening scene of this film is really cool as well, with the death at the movie theater. Um, I forget the actress who played her roommate. I'm so sorry it's leaving me, but she did a great job. And um, Timothy Oliphant plays one of the film students there. Um, you even get a Joshua Jackson brief role in there. Sarah Michelle Gellar plays the victim. Tons of 90s people in this movie. And early on in the movie, you find out there's more than one killer because you hear the killer talking with someone on the phone while another killer runs in the background. So it's like, okay, they, at least they let us know up front that it's more than one in this film as well. Now, the original f- script for this film did leak early And it was a bonkers ending, which I won't get into it really much here, but it's crazy awesome if you want to look up the alternate ending to Scream 2, the screenplay. But uh, they changed it up, and in this final version of the film, the killers ended up being Timothy Oliphant's Mickey and this female reporter that you see throughout the movie who says her name is Debbie Salt, who kind of looks up to Gail Weathers and all that stuff. But when she comes into frame, Sydney recognizes her as Mrs. Loomis, Billy Loomis's mother, the killer from the first movie who had abandoned him as a child. And so that motive's pretty obvious. It's revenge. And Mickey, at the time, because in this movie, it was just a year after the first Scream, and, you know, do movies cause violence was still a hot topic subject. So his whole thing is he wanted to get caught. He wanted to go to trial. He wanted to blame the movies and get off that way because of the hot topic that it was. And it was also kind of a warning for, you know, people are going to start using this excuse to get off now if you keep making this a big deal, which was kind of an interesting subtext. But not only that, but... You know, the killer's coming at the end. Debbie Salt's actually like, eh, fuck you, Mickey, but that's really stupid. It offs Mickey and then tries to kill Sydney for herself. Um, Liev Schreiber, who played Cotton Weary briefly in the first movie, has a much bigger role in this movie. And they do a really good job at making you think he's the killer. When I was first watching the film, I thought it was going to be him. Because obviously he has the motive, you know, Sydney put him in jail innocently for a year to make him mad enough to do something like that. So it, 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 he played a great role. All he wants is to be on the news and be famous, which he finally gets at the end. But he comes in to kind of help Sydney save the day. They kill Mrs. Loomis. Um, Gail gets wounded but survives. Did Dewey gets wounded again and survives. But unfortunately, Randy does not make it. Jamie Kennedy's character does get killed. And while it is sad because I do love his character, it was a genius move because that happens around the middle of the movie. And from that point on, nobody else feels safe. Whenever these characters are in peril, you genuinely think that they are going to die because a beloved character from the first movie was offed halfway through the second movie. A character that you would least expect would be the one, because he was hugely popular. So it was a genius move in doing that, and I think it worked out well for them, but it was sad to see, and Jamie Kennedy was great in those films. But uh, Scream 2 ends with them defeating the killers, and Sydney's feel like she's done with this again, and then you get Scream 3. Honestly, if you haven't seen Scream 3, you can still fucking watch this, because I'm going to save you from watching Scream 3, because this movie fucking sucks. I can't stand Scream 3. But um, I, I still watch it because it's part of the franchise. But Scream 3, it, it has some cool ideas, but it, it doesn't do them well, really, any of them. Uh, in the opening scene, Cotton Weary gets murdered, the Schreiber's character from Scream 2. And he, which was cool, to, it was cool to see him back, but, you know, they killed him off. Not really for any particular reason other than to send a message to Sydney that Ghostface was back. And this time they're making Stab 3. Because the Stab franchise is based on the events of the Scream movies within that world. And the killer is killing people on the set of Stab 3. Cool idea, cool concept. And also, I should point out, Kevin Williamson, who wrote the first two movies, wrote drafts of this third movie, but was replaced by Ewan Kruger, who would go on to write masterpieces like Transformers 2. But uh, anyway, this film didn't work on really any level. 
the big twist is that there's only one killer, fucking lame, and it's um, the director of the film, who I fucking hate, especially when third movies in a franchise do this the most, of how they say, you thought something was this way, but really it's this way. And that's okay if it's clearly part of the plan from the beginning, which you can tell through certain styles of filmmaking, but this was clearly a last-minute thing thrown into the third movie that was not part of the original plan at all, and that Roman Bridger is Sidney's half-brother, and that he is the one who convinced Billy and Stu to go kill her, because he's the director. He directs, as he puts it. It's fucking stupid. Um, God. Positive things. Carrie Fisher shows up for a cameo, which is cool. Jay and Silent Bob are in it for no fucking reason, but I loved it. Jimmy Kennedy does appear as Randy in a video he left in case he dies, which was fucking stupid, but it was cool to see him back regardless. Um, some sequences are genuinely scary. Um, you do get, you know, Ghostface being clumsy, which is always cool and just funny to see. Um, they didn't really know what to do with Dewey in this film, which is unfortunate. Oh, Patrick Dempsey's in it. And he does a good job, but literally his character was just there to be like, you're supposed to think the killer's this guy, when it was way too obvious to have it look like it was going to be him. It was not him. It was terrible. I don't like Scream 3 very much, so we're just going to go past it, because Scream 4 is much better than Scream 3. It's not quite as good as Scream 2, but it is a good movie, and it barely acknowledges Scream 3's existence, so that's fun. But uh, And again, if you have not seen Scream 4... Please don't watch this. Go watch Scream 4 first, because I don't want this one to be spoiled for you either. Because I think this has the best twist since the first Scream movie. In Scream 4, you see... Um, it's It's been 11 years since the events of Scream 3, so it's been a while. And um, Dewey and Gale live in Woodsboro, the town in the first movie. Dewey is now the sheriff. And Gale's whole arc is she's having a hard time adjusting to the small town life where Sydney has written a book about her traumatic past and is doing a book tour, and the last stop on her tour is Woodsboro, the place where she grew up, and the place where these things happened. And while she's in town, Ghostface is back. And uh, it's really interesting. It, it tackles the next generation, sort of my generation at the time, of how would Scream exist in this world, you know, with updated technology and, you know, live streaming being very popular and... Um, Within that, the Stab franchise has also continued a a bunch, and it makes fun of horror franchises that have gone on too long. And the movie fakes you out with its opening sequences of actually being part of the Stab movies, and then you finally get the real opening sequence. Which, the actual opening sequence of this movie is good, but there's an alternate one that they filmed, which is far fucking better, and I don't know why they changed it. But if you have not seen the alternate opening, which was filmed, you can find it on YouTube, the alternate opening to Scream 4, please watch it, because it is fucking awesome. And I wish that they would have kept this version in the movie. But the real one is fine. Um, new members of the cast are Emma Roberts, who plays Jill, Sydney's cousin, who this movie does a great job playing with the tropes of not only horror movies, but the tropes of reboots. Because a big trope in rebo- reboots is you get a new, young, fresh cast to take on the mantle while having the other characters sort of be mentor-type characters. And so this char- this was clearly Jill. Jill was going to be the new face of the Scream franchise moving forward. At least that's what they wanted you to think, which I'll get into in a minute. Um, Hayden Penetary is in the film. I think she gives the best performance in the film. She's excellent. Macaulay Culkin's brother, I believe his name is Rory. Rory McCulkin? Roy? Something like that is in the film. Um, I'm not. There are a couple cast members I'm forgetting, but um, the cast does a, an excellent job um, in this film as well. Um, as the movie goes out, you learn about the new rules of reboots and remakes and how you know things are different now and you can expect different things. Oh, Alison Brie is in it. She plays Sydney's publicist. She does a great job. Uh, her death scene's fucking awesome. And it's... This film, the excellent thing about the twist in this movie 
is yes, it does have echoes of the original, which is part of the trope of the reboot that they were going after. But the main killer turned out to be, major spoilers, Jill Roberts, the new lead that this film was setting up. Sydney's cousin was out to kill Sydney because she was kind of jealous of her fame. And her partner was Macaulay Culkin's brother, Rory McCulkin, I believe is his name, who um, was kind of like the new Randy character in a way. So to kind of make you not think it was going to be him. But um, I really like their dynamic, their chemistry. But like Scream 2, part of Jill's plan is she has to be the only survivor. So she kills the other killer. Thinks she kills Sydney and everybody else. Puts herself in the hospital. And it looks like she's going to win. That she's going to get the... She was the last survivor and she's the hero. But then turns out they all lived. And when she goes to kill Sydney in the hospital, Gail and Dewey show up to save the day. And in an amazing line... Nev Campbell kills Jill and says, you forgot the first rule of remakes, don't fuck with the original. Such a good line, such a great moment. The original Screamcast is awesome, I'm so glad they're coming back for the fifth Scream. Um, But yeah, no, Scream 4 was a very good movie, not as good as 1 and 2, but still quite good. There was some cheesiness in there that didn't need to be there. Oh, cast members I'm remembering, Adam Brody and Anthony Anderson played cops, they were very funny, very good in the movie. Um, there's a major one that I am forgetting. Deputy Hicks is a new character in the film. I'm forgetting the actress's name, but she kind of has a crush on Dewey, so that dynamic was pretty funny. She's actually returning for the fifth movie as well. Um, but yeah, I thoroughly love this franchise, especially the first one I fell in love with. I love the fourth one as well. It's a great movie. Except the third one. Fuck the third one. But I'm okay with the third one because the fourth one redeemed the end of the franchise for me. Hopefully the fifth one's good. I think it will be with the Ready or Not directors coming in. It is unfortunate, though, that Wes Craven passed away and can't see it through the end. Um, There's a TV show that I never watched. I heard bad things about it, so I didn't check it out. But if you have, let me know in the comments below. Let me know if it's any good. But, uh, yeah, no, I love the Scream franchise. Love these movies. And if I'm going to give them each grades, Scream gets an A+. Scream 2 gets an A-. Scream 3 gets a D+, and Scream 4 gets a B. And if we're going to rank them, obviously it's 1, 2, 4, and 3 in the ranking. Thank you guys so much for watching. And um, I think from this point on, next week I'm going to be doing audio-only podcasts because we're really diving into filming our new short film, The Local, um, which details have been released on our social medias, if you would please check out if you're interested. Um, Instagram and Twitter, at Movie Nights. Facebook, just Movie Nights. Um, thank you guys so much for watching. Oh, and one more thing. Um, the podcast is now on Amazon Music. So if you're an audio-only listener, on whether you're on Spotify, Apple, SoundCloud, Google, whatever, you can now listen to us on Amazon Music, which is very cool and exciting news. And if you're watching us on YouTube, thank you and please subscribe to us. And um, again, thank you guys so much for watching, and we'll see you next time.